And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today September 27th, 270th day of the year. 95 days remain to the year's over with. <clears throat> Y'all asked for holidays and observances, so here they are. World Tourism Day, Ancestor Appreciation Day, Day of the uh, French Community, that's celebrating an important day for Belgium's French-speaking community. In Egypt, it's Al-Muled Al-Nabali, that's a uh, celebration in honor of the Prophet Muhammad's birth, 27th. Milad ad Nabi is celebrated by Muslims as the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad in Malid. Uh, 27th, uh, Morning Show Host Day. National AJ Day. National Chocolate Milk Day. National Corned Beef Hash Day. National Crush a Can Day. Um... Also, National Crush Day, where you crush uh, global wastage. National No Excuses Day. National Scarf Day. National Women's Health and Fitness Day. And, it goes without saying, it is Prophet Muhammad's birthday. He is the Islam's founder. Alrighty. 1066. My ancestor William the Conqueror and his army set sail from the mouth of the Somme River, beginning the Norman conquest of England. 1331. The Battle of Plaus is fought between the Kingdom of Poland and the Teutonic Order. Poles are defeated, but their leaders escape capture. The uh, Teutonic Order was the German version of the Knights Templar, for those that don't know. 1422. After the belief. The brief Godly War, the Teutonic Knights signed the Treaty of Melno with Poland and Lithuania. 1529, the Siege of Vienna begins when Suleiman I attacks the city. 1540, the Society of Jesus, also known as the Jesuits, receives its charter from Pope Paul III. 1590, the death of Pope Urban VII, 13 days after being chosen Pope, ends the shortest papal reign in history. 1605, the armies of Sweden are defeated by the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in the Battle of Kirchholm. 1669, the Venetians surrendered the fortress of Candia to the Ottomans, ending a 21-year-long siege of Candia. 1777, American Revolution, Lancaster, Pennsylvania becomes the capital of the United States for one day after Congress evacuates Philadelphia. 1791, National Assembly of France votes to award full citizenship to Jews. 1821, the Army of the Three Guarantees triumphantly enters Mexico City, led by Augustine de Iturbide. Next day, Mexico is declared independent. 1822, uh, Jean-Francois Champollion officially informs the Académie des Inscriptions at uh, Belbatres in France that he is a uh, Deciphered the Rosetta Stone. 
That was the stone found in uh, Egypt by one of uh, Napoleon's uh, officers. 1825, the world's first public railway to use steam locomotives to Stockton and Darlington Railway ceremonially opened. 1854, the paddle steamer SS Arctic, owned by the Collins Line of New York, sinks off the coast of Newfoundland following a collision with a smaller vessel, the SS Vesta. Only 88 of over 300 people on board survive. About a dozen of the occupants of the Vesta are killed when their lifeboats hit by the Arctic. 1875, the merchant sailing ship Ellen Southard is wrecked in a storm at Liverpool. 1903, wreck of the old 97, an American rail disaster in which 11 people were killed. Later becomes the subject of a popular ballad. 1908, production of the Model T automobile begins at the Ford Pickwick Avenue plant in Detroit. 1916, Yasu. Five is proclaimed deposed as a ruler of Ethiopia in a palace coup in favor of his aunt, Zuti. Uh, 1922, King Constantine I of Greece abdicates his throne in favor of his eldest son, George II. 1928, the Republic of China is recognized by the United States. 1930, Bobby Jones wins the pre-master's grand slam of golf. 1938, the ocean liner Queen Elizabeth is launched in Glasgow. 1940, World War II, the Tripartite Pact is signed in Berlin by Germany, Japan, and Italy. 1941, the Greek National Liberation Front is established with Giorgio Santos as acting leader. Also in 1941, the SS Patrick Henry is launched, becoming the first of more than 2,700 Liberty ships. 1942, the last day of the Botanical action on Guadalcanal as U.S. Marines barely escaped after being surrounded by Japanese forces. 1944, the Cassell mission results in the largest loss by United States Army Air Force Group on any mission in World War II. The Cassell mission, also known as the Air Battle over Sulinsguald, mission was aimed to de- destroy the factories in Cassell of the engineering works of Henschel and Son, which built uh, track German vehicles such as the Tiger and the Panther tank and all the associated infrastructure. The 8th Air Force sent 283 B-24 Liberator bombers of the 2nd Combat Bombardment Wing and 198 P-51 Mustang fighters. Well, as a result of a navigation error, Lead ship of the 445th Bombardment Group turned almost due east instead of east-southeast in its 35 bombers bypassed Cassell, deciding instead to bomb the railway facilities in the town of Gottingen. The marshalling yard and a parish shop were a mist, instead 25 buildings in the village of Rossdorf on the southwest edge of Gottingen were damaged and three people injured. The villagers later counted 103 bomb craters. As a result of the change of course, the bombers lost their fighter escort on a return flight. Uh, they were attacked by 150 fighters of the German uh, Jagdis Schweiter squadrons. It was not a good day for the Army Air Force. 1949, Zing Lianzong's design is chosen as the flag of the People's Republic of China. 
1956, U.S. Army, U.S. Air Force Captain Milburn Apt becomes the first person to exceed Mach 3. Shortly after that, the Bell X-2 goes out of control and Captain Apt is killed. Which just goes to show, you can't win them all. 1959, Typhoon Vera kills nearly 5,000 people in Japan. 1962, the Yemen Arab Republic is established. Also in 62, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, is published, inspiring an environmental movement and the creation of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. 1964, the British TSR-2 aircraft makes its maiden flight. Um, the, TR, the TSR-2 aircraft is known as the XR-219 1973, Texas International Airlines Flight 655 crashes into the Black Fork Mountain Wilderness in Mena, Arkansas, killing all 11 people on board. 1975, the last use of capital punishment in Spain sparks worldwide protest. 1977, Japan Airlines Flight 715 crashes on approach to Sultan Abdul Aziz Shah Airport in Subang, Malaysia, killed 34 people of the 79 on board. 1988, the National League for Democracy is formed by Aung San Suu Kyi and others to fight dictatorship in Myanmar. 1993, the Sukhumi massacre takes place in Abhaza. 1996, the Battle of Kabul ends in a Taliban victory and Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan is established. Also in 96, confusion on a tanker ship results in the Julian oil spill in Portland, Maine. 1998, the Google Internet search engine retroactively uh, claims this date is its birthday. Also in 1998, a funnel cloud spotted over Mission Beach in Cali uh, California. 2001, in Switzerland, a gunman shoots 18 citizens, kills 14, and then shoots himself. 2003, the Smart One satellite is launched. For those that aren't familiar with the Smart One, it was a Swedish design. European Space Agency satellite that orbited around the moon um, launched September 27, 2003 from the Ghana Space Center in Karoo, French Ghana. SMART-1 stands for Small Missions for Advanced Research and Technology 1. September 3, 2006, it was a little crashed into the moon, which effectively ended its mission. 2007, NASA launches the Dawn probe to the asteroid belt. 2008, CNSA astronaut Zai Zigang becomes the first Chinese person to perform a spacewalk. 2012, in Minneapolis, a gunman shoots seven citizens, kills five, and shoots himself. 2014, eruption of Mount Otaki in Japan occurs on this date. Uh, 2019, Two million people participate in worldwide strikes to protest climate change across 2,400 locations worldwide. Now, let me ask you this. How are the strikes going to stop climate change? Since it seems to be a natural phenomenon, the climate has changed for the good and for the bad for eons on this planet. They don't pay attention to strikes. They don't pay attention to um, 
songs. They don't pay attention to um, fundraisers or anything else. 2020, the second Nagorno-Karabakh War. Azerbaijan launched an offensive against the self-proclaimed Republic of Artsakh, inhabited predominantly by ethnic Armenians. It was just recently uh, I saw um, overrun. Well, all that having been said, we've been talking about um, unsolved murders. I got a couple more to discuss with you today. You know, two of the biggest names in hip hop were actually killed by drive by shootings, and neither case has been solved. According to a former LAP detective named Russell Poole, if this had been some ordinary drive by shooting by some inexperienced gangbangers, we'd have solved it a long time ago. But the people involved in this one seems to have a pretty good idea what they were doing. And I'm talking about rap megastars Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls. They were friends who later became bitter rivals. Yeah, death sparked the most infamous murder mystery in hip-hop history. There were two of the leading rap artists of the 1990s. And they actually remain among the most influential of all time. Their fame and success were rapidly rising. In the space of six months, both were killed in broad rice shootings. This is November 7th, 1996, Tupac Secure, just 25 years old at the time, was gunned down in his car in Las Vegas and died of his wound six days later. March 9th of the next year, 1997, 24-year-old Christopher Wallace, better known as Biggie Smalls, with a notorious B.I.G., was shot dead in his car in Los Angeles. Well, early in their careers, the two were good friends. But they were now key players in the East Coast-West Coast hip-hop rivalry. Princeton between the competing record labels, Bad Boy Records, owned by Puff Daddy, Sean Combs, and Death Row Records, owned by Sug Knight. Bitter. The feud sparked uh, bitter tensions between rappers, fans, and even the L.A. gangs. With the Crips back in Bad Boy Records and the Bloods back in Death Row Records. Well, in 1994, Shakur was ambushed and shot five times at the Quad Records studio in Manhattan, New York, and he accused Biggie of being responsible. Some say it was this incident that launched uh, the rift that would ultimately claim the lives of both artists. Following various accusations, uh, Biggie responded by releasing songs with veiled reference to the shooting, while Shakur released um, Hit Em Up, lyrics of which uh, bragged that he had swept and slept with Biggie's wife, the singer and songwriter Faith Evans. September 7, 1996, Tupac attended the Mike Tyson versus uh, Bruce Seldon boxing match at the NDM Grand in Las Vegas. After they uh, left, Shug Knight drove Shakur to a party at Club 662 with the rest of Tupac's entourage following in various cars. Well, Knight stopped at a traffic light, a white Cadillac pulled up alongside their black BMW, and more than a dozen shots were fired from a 40 caliber Glock um, automatic, mortally wounding Tupac and uh, grazing Knight's head. 
Tubek was hit twice in the chest, once in the arm and once in the thigh. September 13, 1996, he died from his injuries. Well, the police investigation into Tupac's murder was plagued by lack of evidence and fearful, uncooperative witnesses, despite the fact that numerous people were nearby when the shootings occurred. Rapper Yaki Gaddafi, friend of Tupac, was in the car behind him and said he could identify the shooter. Uh, unfortunately, Gaddafi was accidentally shot dead by the rapper Napoleon, a former member of Tupac's rap group uh, Outlaws, on September 10th before the police were able to interview him about the case. That seems a little bit too coincidental to me. First person of interest in the shooting was, of course, a Southside Crips gang member named Orlando Anderson, who'd been uh, fighting with Tupac in the MGM Grand Lobby shortly before the shooting. Shook Knight's friend, uh, Trevon Lane, had identified Anderson as the person that robbed him of his... Uh, Death Row Records chain, customarily worn by members of the label a few weeks earlier. Tupac and other members of Death Row Records promptly beat Anderson up. When Tupac was ambushed in a drive-by shooting later that night, Anderson became the prime suspect, of course. He was arrested in question October 2, 1996, but he was released without charges two days later. Anderson himself died in 1998 in a gang shooting unrelated to the Tupac case. Music World reeled with grief following the shooting of Tupac, but it wouldn't be long before fans were mourning another. Shocking murder. Biggie Smalls closed his second album, entitled Life After Death, with the track You're Nobody Till Somebody Kills You. Just weeks after this, he was shot dead himself. About 12.35 in the morning on March 9, 1997, Biggie climbed into the passenger seat of his GMC Suburban. He's leaving a Soul Train Awards after party hosted by Vibe Magazine at the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles. Car came to a halt at a red light, a dark green or black, depending on which witness you listen to. A Chevy pulled up alongside. Driver was reported wearing a blue suit and a bow tie. At least seven rounds from a nine millimeter pistol of unknown make were fired through the door of Biggie's car and the closed tinted window. Only one hit was Biggie. Only an assassination with a killer making a having a specific target in mind. Biggie's rushed to nearby Cedar Sinai hospitals and announced dead at eleven one fifteen AM. He'd been hit by four bullets. Fatal shot struck his right hip, traveled up his vital organs, including both his heart and his lungs. Death was almost instantaneous. LAPD officer said that Biggie had to be crazy to be so unprotected in Los Angeles six months after Tupac. In fact, Biggie's were awaiting well, uh, delivery of a new bulletproof Chevrolet, Chevrolet Suburban. Didn't arrive until three days after his death. This professional drive-by hit mirrored the earlier slaying of Tupac Shakur, and the LAPD soon announced that in their quest, um, opinion, the murder was motivated by revenge. According to one officer, the conventional wisdom is it's got to be paid back for Tupac. Many rapaficionados agreed the murders were a result of a long-running feud between the East Coast and West Coast. Others speculated the feud could be a veil to hide more complex motives. Nick Broomfield's 2002 feature-length documentary, Biggie and Tupac, put forward a case that uh, Suge Knight ordered uh, Tupac's murder because Suge owed, a rap star, owed the rap star a large sum of money and royalties and 
You'd heard through the grapevine Tupac was prepared to switch to another record label. Broomfield also alleged uh, that Sug Knight had Tupac killed in order to sell more posthumous um, albums. According to Bloomfield, the murders of both Shakur and Biggie were orchestrated by Suge and carried out and uh, covered up by LAPD. He alleged that in the time of the murder, Suge, the Knight had uh, several LAPD officers on his payroll working as off-duty bodyguards. In the documentary, a former LAPD detective named Russell Poole reports that his own private investigation into Suge Knight's uh, role in the murders of Tupac and Biggie was rebuffed. Poole believed his superiors were engaged in the cover-up and he resigned as a result. If this had been some ordinary drive-by shooting by some inexperienced gangbangers, we'd have solved it a long time ago. As it is, it'll never be solved. Randall Sutherland authored a 2002 book on the murders. L.A. Labyrinth has presented a case uh, against Death Row Records boss. He claimed Knight had Biggie murdered to maintain the illusion of a tit-for-tat feud and divert uh, suspicion from himself for Tupac's murder. 2005, Biggie's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit in which the, they commented, uh, they contended an LAPD officer named David Mack helped plan Biggie's shooting. Mack, who by this time was serving a 14-year prison sentence for bank robbery, denied any involvement. Kevin Hackey, uh, Tupac's former bodyguard, was called as a witness. He testified that Mack and the employees of Death Row Records, including Suge Knight, orchestrated the murder. He stated once he heard uh, Death Row Records head of security and LAPD officer Reggie Wright Jr. say that they're going to get Biggie in retaliation for Tupac's murder. However, as is typical in cases like this, where evidence can be embarrassing to people in power, the wrongful death lawsuit was dismissed. Friendly judge, don't you know? Suge Knight's currently incarcerated at R.J. Donovan Corrections Facility in San Diego, serving a 28-year sentence for hit-and-run murder in 2015, unrelated to the Secure and Smalls case. Another wildly popular theory is that it was, in fact, Biggie Smalls who ordered to hit on Tupac Secure during the escalating East Coast-West Coast feud. L.A. Times reporter... Chuck Phillips wrote an article in which he claimed that Biggie was in Las Vegas at the time of the shooting and he supplied the gun and $1 million bounty for the murder of Tupac. And it was carried out by the Crips in revenge for the beating of Orlando Anderson. However, further investigation revealed that Biggie was in New York recording a, studio, a New York recording studio at the time of the murder. Phillips later wrote another report that asserted Biggie was involved in the 1994 shooting of Shakur in Manhattan. The report claimed that Biggie, along with Sean Combs and Zara Entertainment CEO Jimmy Hinchman Roseman, orchestrated the attack in response to perceived disrespect by Tupac. Now, of course, both Combs and Roseman denied any involvement, saying that the story was beyond ridiculous and completely false. They said they had never even been questioned regarding the 1994 shooting. Phillips supposedly got the information from jailhouse informants in 2011. Dexter Isaac, who was serving time in prison for unrelated crimes, claimed that he had committed the 1994 shooting of Tupac Shakur and that Roseman had paid him $2,500 to do it. One of the conspiracy theories and stream of suspects surrounding the two murders are seemingly endless. 
Entire LAPD homicide detective Greg Kading, who worked on both cases, provided uh, another theory. In his 2011 book, Murder Rap, the untold story of the Biggie Smalls and Tupac Shakur murders by the detective who saw both cases, he maintained that Sean Coombs hired Tupac's assassin for $1 million. Further sources in a 1998 Vice article is that uh, Biggie was killed over unpaid debts of $100,000 owed to the Crips, who had been uh, hired as security by Combs. Pepper refused to pay the 100000 He offered him 10000 That's why Reggie Small's dead today, according to Reggie Wright Jr., who would uh, later be named in, as a suspect in Tupac's murder by both Suge Knight and, and Kevin Hackey during the wrongful death lawsuit filed by Biggie's family. Combs responded, that's not even possible. I don't have debts. Well, in 2018, rapper Keith D., real name Dwayne Keith Davis, who was dying from cancer, claimed in a deathbed confession he had been a witness to the Tupac shooting. He said he'd been in the front seat, and his nephew, Orlando Baby Lane Anderson, and DeAndre Dre Smith were in the back seat of the Cadillac. The driver was Terrence T. Brown Brown. Our members, now deceased, of the Southside Crips, and they were looking for Tupac out for revenge after Tupac had early beaten up Anderson in the lobby of the MGM Grand. Spotting Tupac talking to some girl fans, they pulled up next to his car, and Anderson shot him. Well, the Forever interviewed uh, members gave, uh, or murders, gave an insight into hip-hop's murky underworld. Short lives and violent deaths of Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls have made their international made them international icons. Few pop culture figures have been mythologized and eulogized to the same extent. Spectacular murals playing tribute to both rap artists adorn streets worldwide. Nevertheless, despite the many articles and books and movies and theories devoted to the double murder, nobody has ever been charged with either killing. And as long as the surviving key players remain tight-lipped, there's little hope there's, there's going to be full disclosure at any time. All the theories and all the books and all the movies still can't put together a case against anybody for the murder of these two young men. Well, as you might guess, there are certain murders that are considered iconic, like the Kennedy assassination. There are still being books written about that today. In fact, I'm working on another one. Well, all that said, let's turn to the Jill Dando murder. Television presenter Jill Dando killed on the doorstep of her London home. Not only made headlines because of her celebrity status, according to Michael Mansfield, who was a Queen's Council was a professional hit. You don't see many of those in London. Now, she was a popular BBC TV presenter throughout the 1990s. Her engaging personality lit up such programs as uh, Breakfast News, the 6 o'clock news, and the travel series Holiday. But she's best known as one of the principal anchors of the primetime investigative show Crime Watch. Each week, she'd present the key facts of a recent unsolved UK crime and invite viewers to help police by contacting a special phone number. Crime Watch was partly responsible for bringing a number of criminals to justice. 
At just 37 years old, this young lady was in the prime of her life. Her career was on the upswing, and she was soon going to be married. Her fiancé was gone to college, just uh, Alan Farthing. Lived in Bedford Close, in the affluent district of Chiswick, in West London. And Dando was in the process of selling her own two-story house at 29 Gallon Avenue in Fulham so that she could move in with him. Her own house was for sale, of course, but she still needed to stop off there to pick up mail and check her fax machine. And it was on the morning of April 26, 1999, that Jill set off in her car to make just such a visit. All the way there, she went into a BP garage and then visited Hammersmith Shopping Center, bought a new fax machine cartridge and paper and two fillets of Dover sole. Her image was captured on security cameras and and there was no evidence at the time that she or her car were being followed. She was scheduled to read the BBC 6, six o'clock news the next day. And in an interesting twist of fate, her own murder would be the lead story. About 11.30 in the morning, she arrived at her front door, carrying a shopping bag in one hand and her house keys in the other. Before she had a chance to open the door, she was pushed to the ground and shot once in the head. Dando's neighbor, Richard Hughes, told police later that around the time of the attack, he heard her let out a very distinctive scream. Sounded quite surprised. Moments later, he spotted a clean-sleeving, well-dressed man with dark hair running down the street. He said uh, the man was in his late 30s, early 40s, about 5 foot 11 inches tall. Of course, unaware anything was wrong, Hughes went on to continue his day. Fifteen minutes later, a woman passing by discovered Jill Dando lying on the ground outside her house in a pool of blood, head resting against her front door. And the woman called authorities, and Jill was rushed to Charing Cross Hospital, but pronounced dead on arrival. <clears throat> Optops revealed the gun had been pressed hard against her head when it was fired. <coughs> Excuse me. The impression of the weapon's barrel and sight was clearly visible. A single 9mm bullet had entered just behind the top of her left ear and exited, exited above the right ear, embedding itself in the front door. gun had been fitted with a silencer, but because it was fired where forced against her head, the noise of the shot would have been greatly reduced. Damage to the lower part of the door indicated the victim had been in a crouched position when the fatal shot was fired. Presumably, she was forced to the ground by her killer and a bruise on her forearm could have been caused by the assailant as well. Well, police investigators, some of who had worked with her on Crime Watch, now had the grim task of trying to identify and catch her killer. And speculation, of course, immediately focused on the motive for the murder. Well, as an investigative journalist and presenter, she'd come uh, into contact with a number of unsavory characters over the course of her career. Could she have been targeted by a professional hitman? Was there somebody seeking revenge? One theory was that she'd been murdered by a Yugoslavian or Serbian assassin after making a TV appeal for Kosovo Albanian refugees who had been driven from their homes by militias backing a Serbian leader, Slobodan Milosevic. Appeals broadcast April 6, 1997, just 20 days before the murder. Another theory was that she'd been targeted by a criminal she had helped expose on an episode of Crime Watch. The fact that the killer knew to place the gun directly against her head and minimize noise and blood spatter indicated he or she could, not necessarily it, or was, but could have been a professional.
Another early line of inquiry examined the possibility that they'll be murdered by an obsessive stalker. An occupational hazard for those in the limelight. <clears throat> According to Detective Chief Inspector Hamish Campbell, it could either be a stalker or a hitman. There are many theories to be explored and nothing will be left untouched. He was, the lead, he was leading the investigation. Massive media coverage meant the police were under great pressure to find the killer. Nevertheless, their inquiries proved fruitless until uh, more than a year later came the announcement that the uh, press and the media had been waiting for. May 25, 2000, Barry George, 39, described as a local weirdo with an obsession for Freddie Mercury of the rock band Queen, was arrested and charged with Jill Dando's murder. Well, it seems that Barry George came to the attention of the police when he called him shortly after Dando's death to report he'd been seeing a truck acting suspiciously near her home on the day of the murder. Police discovered George was unemployed, had a history of stalking women and convictions for sexual assault. He was put under surveillance, so his police collected evidence against him. Detectives allegedly assigned to Undercover police wanted to talk to George, hoping he'd confessed to the murder, but that didn't happen. Interestingly enough, you try to help, you become a suspect. When police are under pressure to solve a case, they'd arrest St. Peter if they thought they could. After George's arrest, much was made of his local reputation as a loner and an oddball. And he certainly had obsessive aspects to his personality, had an unusual interest in celebrities, and frequently adopted their names. Years leading up to his arrest, he'd called himself Steve Majors after actor Lee Majors, who played uh, Colonel Steve Austin on the TV action series Six Million Dollar Man, called himself uh, Barry Bolsara, Freddie Mercury's real surname. George began calling himself Barry Bolsara following Mer Mercury's death in 1991. Claimed to be Freddie Mercury's cousin and pestered women who worked for Queen's fan club. George also fabricated stories about his past. Claimed to have made a, been a roadie for Michael Jackson and served in the British Army's Elite S Special um, Air Service Corps, or the SAS. 1983, he'd been arrested wearing a balaclava and carrying a knife and rope on the grounds of uh, Kensington Palace. Those that knew him said he was obsessed with his health and frequently was seen uh, jogging or cycling in the neighborhood. Shortly before his trial, George had an IQ of 75, which made him eligible for Congress. Uh, placing him in the lowest 5% of the population was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. During the trial, prosecution stressed the fact that when his fat, uh, flat nearby uh, Crookham Road was searched, they discovered 54 newspaper clippings dating back to 1990 about Jill. Barry's lawyer, Michael Mansfield, QC, pointed out that uh, George Austin had a number of newspaper clippings concerning other celebrities. In fact, the articles about Jill represented only 8% of the clippings found in his flat. There'd be no way of telling him that uh, from the 670 newspapers found there whether he had more interest in Manchester United than Jill Dando, according to the attorney. He was responding to the prosecution's claim that George had a, was an obsessive fan. Fundamental flaw in this argument is that there's no evidence 
at all. Prior to Jen Dandel's murder, the defendant had any exaggerated, special, or particular interest in her. That's according to the attorney. He emphasized that when uh, Barry's flat was searched, no personal photographs or videos of Dando were found, and neither were any autographs. George was obsessed with Dando, as the prosecution claimed. He had surely gone to her house, just a short distance from his own, to take photographs of her, or at least attempt to ask her for her autograph. Witnesses at the trial claimed to have noticed George outside Dendo's house several hours before the murder. However, the only uh, piece of evidence, uh, concrete evidence, conceivably uh, tied George to the crime, came uh, was a tiny trace of a substance reported to be firearm residue found in the pocket of his jacket. Polyester fiber found on Dendo's uh, coat could have come from George's trousers. But the fiber was too common and too small for forensic expert Godfrey uh, Rowe to uh, be sure. Well, Mansfield went on to claim the murder could have been a uh, Serbian death squad reprisal for the RAS bombing of Belgrade TV station. He also produced an official report that stated that a Serbian warlord had put the BBC Director General Sir John Burt on a hit list. He suggested to the court that the Target may have been changed to Joe Dando after security was allegedly stepped up to uh, protect Sir John. Despite the flimsy and highly circumstantial evidence against him, Barry George was found guilty July 2, 2001, and sentenced to life in prison. And a deep appeal was turned down the following year. Well, doggedly protesting his innocence, George took the case to the Criminal Case Review Commission. Forensic science experts now question whether the particle found in George's jacket was farm residue after all. They decided it was, in fact, no more likely that the particle came from a gun fired by George than it had come from some other source. So a retrial was ordered and then scheduled, and the firearm evidence so crucial to George's original conviction was dismissed by the judge. August 1st, 2008, George was acquitted after serving seven years in prison. Well, following the acquittal, there was widespread criticism in the media that the police had focused all their attention on trying to prove George guilt and devoted inf- insufficient time to investigating other potential suspects. According to reports released in 2015, over 100 possible suspects in the murder were never successfully uh, traced by police. Documents showed that some of these individuals included members of the Serbian Secret Service and of the IRA as well. Also, uh, a notorious British gangster based in Spain. Furthermore, 11 men spotted in George's on Gerald Street that afternoon were never identified. According to QC Michael Mansfield, I find it disturbing that a hundred suspects were never followed up. Put Barry George in the frame, they had to exclude everybody else. Instead, it was just easier because he was right there. After this information came to light, Alice Beers, a BBC colleague of Jill Dando and former presenter on the Watchdog Consumer Advice Program, reported Jill had received threatening letters just weeks before she was killed. She said that both she and Jill had gotten letters from somebody threatening to kidnap and rape them. She expected the police to contact her about the letters, but she never was. She said if no stone was left unturned, then I would have been called. So clearly the police really didn't care. So was Joe Dundell's murder an obsessive fan, a vengeful gangster, or a Serbian hitman? 2009, the BBC revealed shortly after Jill's murders, an anonymous caller claimed to have killed Joe Dando. 
It also threatened the head of BBC News at the same time, Tony Hall. 2012, the Serbian angle seemed to become more plausible when the Daily Mail newspaper reported a Serbian woman, Branka Pep, uh, Prepa, claimed that her TV presenter husband, Slavko Kravija, a critic of Slobodan Milosevic, had been murdered on a fashion similar, just 15 days before Jill Dando was. Despite intense media coverage in the press and on TV and a hefty reward for information leading to a conviction, Jill Dando's killer has never been brought to justice. April 1990, uh, excuse me, April 2019, 20 years after Dando's murder, BBC documentary examined the case, but uh, turned up no new evidence. Jill Dando's brother Nigel interviewed on the program, said it's uh, such a pointless thing to have happened. I believe there was no reason, just an act of random brutality, and Jill was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or she could have known something about one of the cases she was presenting, and she's going to reveal it. I mean, reporters like to do that. It's called a scoop, don't you know? Let's talk about the Kathleen Peterson murder. The serious fate of successful businesswoman Kathleen Peterson whipped up a storm of controversy and wild theorizing that is still going on today. Um, it's, nobody knows if it was a brutal murder, a tragic accident, or a bizarre bird strike. According to the prosecuting DA, Jim Harden, every aspect of Mike Peterson's life is actually a lie. You know, you really don't know anything except what people tell you about their background. I know an individual who, in fact, we associated with him in New York for years. He was an Army colonel. Had all these awards and decorations. Um, had a very attractive Filipino wife who was quiet as a mouse. Turned out, he wasn't an army colonel. He had been a sergeant, and the doting wife was actually a kidnapped girl from the Philippines, afraid to tell anybody because he had threatened to kill her. You know, to the outside world, the Petersons had everything a beautiful home, a loving marriage, successful careers. Kathleen Peterson earned a six-figure salary with a telecommunications company. Her husband, Michael, was a full-time novelist. Well, this image was shattered on December 9, 2001, when Kathleen was found dead at the bottom of the staircase in the couple's North Carolina home. And the investigation that followed uncovered lies and adultery and financial woes and, and another death at the bottom of a different staircase. It also led to Michael Peterson's eventual conviction although a lot of folks believe there are other explanations for Kathleen's death. Well, Kathleen was 48. Michael was 58. Both had been married before when they met in the mid-'80s. meeting was facilitated by their children, who were friends. Kathleen had a teenage daughter named Caitlin Atwater. Michael had two sons, Clayton and Todd, from his first marriage, and two adopted daughters named uh, Margaret and Martha. Well, in 1992, the 
This Brady Bunch-style family moved into a sprawling 14-room house on Cedar Street in Durham, North Carolina. Five years later, Michael and Kathleen uh, Peterson uh, exchanged vows, making their union official. Caitlin described them as the most ideal parents. After moving into the Cedar Street house, Michael Peterson uh, started writing uh, columns on city politics for the local newspaper, The Herald Sun. And his increased public profile prompted him to run for mayor. Bid that ended uh, badly following revelations he had exaggerated his military record. Claimed he was awarded a Purple Heart after being wounded by shrapnel in Vietnam. In reality, he was awarded the medal after he had been hit, uh, hurt in a car accident. Well, despite this embarrassment, Peterson still hoped to enter the political arena. In 2001, a few months before Kathleen's death, he ran for city council. Lost again. When officials moved so quickly to charge him with his wife's murder, he wondered if local politics had something to do with it. Well, early hours of December 9th, Michael Peterson frantically called 911. Said, my wife had an accident. She's still breathing. She fell down the stairs. Please come. Well, police and medics arrived uh, to be greeted by Peterson in shorts and a t-shirt. Said he'd spent three hours by the pool that night, despite the temperature outside being around uh, 55. Which for me would be a little cool. Kathleen was lying in a pool of blood at the bottom of the stairs. Blood splatter climbed the walls and reached the ceiling, wearing sweatpants and a sweatshirt. Appropriate clothing for the outside temperature. There appeared to be a shoe print on the, and blood on the back of her sweatshirt. Peter stood barefoot when the police arrived. His trainers and socks were found next to Kathleen's body. Well, the autopsy found that Kathleen's head had been sliced open in pla several places. Medical examiner determined she'd been, she had died as a result of a beating, not a fall from the stairs. In addition, a drop of blood was found on the inside of Peterson's shorts. Well, Peterson insisted he was innocent of his wife's death, said he and Kathleen had been drinking champagne to celebrate a possible movie deal for one of his novels, and she'd taken a Valium. You can only surmise that the combination of the drug with the alcohol made her unsteady on her flip-flop clad feet, causing her to tumble down the wooden staircase. He said he'd been relaxing by the pool too far away to hear any screams from the house. He said, I've whispered her name more than a thousand times and I can't stop crying. I've never done anything to hurt her, he told re reporters outside the Durham County Jail. Well, investigators did find alcohol in Kathleen's system. Their blood alcohol content was um, only 0.07 below the legal limit to drive in North Carolina. Also learned that Kathleen had suffered from headaches and dizziness for weeks before she fell and even lost half her vision for half an hour at one point. Nevertheless, in the I-know-better-than-you manner that most police adopt, they knew he did it. They claimed I found too much evidence that pointed to Michael as the culprit, including another dead body. Sixteen years before Kathleen was found dead, a 43-year-old woman named Elizabeth Ratliff died in a similar accident. She was an American working as a teacher at an air base next to Frankfurt, Germany. Also a friend of Peterson's who lived in Germany for a spell with his first wife and two sons. November 25, 1985, Ratliff died after falling down the stairs. And as is the case in Kathleen's uh, incident, there was a lot of blood at the scene. 
According to her friend, Cheryl Apple uh, Schumacher, would help clean up, the blood was all the way up the staircase. Authorities had accepted that the death was an accident, that uh, Elizabeth suffered a brain hemorrhage while climbing the stairs. Michael left to organize Elizabeth's funeral and subsequently adopted her daughters. Well, in North Carolina, prosecutors heard of Michael's proximity to another staircase-related death. They announced the similarities were too many to be ignored. They believed the circumstances was Elizabeth Ratliff's death and given Michael Peterson the idea of how to murder his own wife and get away with it. According to uh, Detective Art Holland in a TV report, here I have two cases, two women that appeared to die the same way. Two women who associate with Michael Peterson. Lightning doesn't strike the same place twice. Typical uh, short-sighted uh, logic. Elizabeth's body was exhumed in Texas. The medical examiner from North Carolina performed a new autopsy. The new verdict? Elizabeth had been beaten to death, and the German authorities had overlooked the evidence. John Harden, the district attorney who prosecuted Peterson, did a great deal of research on the subject, a lot of which he was uh, severely damning. The couple had $143,000 in credit card debt, nearly equal to Kathleen's annual salary. Kathleen had confided to her sister Candace that her company's stock was in free fall and it. She'd lost a million dollars on paper. In addition, Kathleen was insured for $1.4 million, which Michael would pocket if her death were accidental. Harden argued that the son would solve Michael's financial problems and would continue to live the affluent, privileged life to which he'd become accustomed. But there was another revelation the prosecutors uh, offered as the most likely murder motive. Peterson had a cache of gay pornography on his computer and been emailing men for sex. One of them, Brent um, Wolgamott, who said he'd charge men 150 an hour to do everything under the sun, testified he'd exchanged 20 emails with Peterson and talked to him on the phone between August 30th and September 5th, 2001. Wolgamott uh, planned to meet Peterson, but the, morning, the meeting never took place and never heard from him again. Wolgamott also testified Peterson made it clear he was committed to his wife. According to Assistant District Attorney David Sachs, it was, if it's an idyllic relationship in this marriage, why is he emailing somebody else to meet for sexual relations outside the marriage? State computer experts determined that somebody had deleted hundreds of gay pornography files in the days leading up to Kathleen's death. And after she died, Sachs suggested Kathleen could have found the pornographic photos or the Sex soliciting emails on Peterson's computer and confronted him, which would have been a possible motive for the murder. Durham County DA James Harden Jr. pointed out to the abundance of blood at the crime as proof Peterson was lying about Kathleen's uh, fate. During the 2003 trial, the prosecutors tried to call to testify Dwayne Deaver, a State Bureau of Identification agent deemed by Judge Orlando Hudson to be an expert on blood spatter evidence. Deeper told jurors he'd conducted a series of experiments that pointed away from Kathleen having accidentally fallen and more toward a beating. Peterson's lawyers presented their own blood spatter expert, Dr. Henry Lee, the medical examiner in the infamous O.J. Simpson case, who asserted that the blood in the stairwell was in fact consistent with a fall. Once Kathleen hit her head, she would have coughed up blood while dazed and staggering. Lee not only theorized Kathleen's coughing fit could have propelled blood spatter up the stairwell walls, he insisted that the amount of blood splatter precluded a beating. Well, no murder weapon was found at the scene, but the prosecution offered one anyway. 
Kathleen's sister Candice had given Kathleen a fireplace uh, blow poke, a holler type of poker that can, you can blow through acting like a bellows. That was a Christmas present in 1984. According to pathologist Dr. Deborah Radish, the 40-inch brass tool was the perfect instrument for inflicting the lacerations found on Kathleen's scalp. And the blow poke was found, covered with dead insects and cobwebs in a garage during the trial. Subsequent forensic tests ruled out the blow poke as the murder weapon, and no other potential weapons had ever been suggested. October 20, uh, 10, 2003, jurors sided with the prosecution. Michael Peterson was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. His adopted daughters, whose mother's death had been used to prove Peterson's guilt, sobbed in the courtroom certain of his innocence. Kathleen's friends, including her daughter Caitlin, who after hearing all the evidence split with her siblings and believing Peterson guilty, applauded the conviction. She and her biological father awarded the $1.4 million life insurance policy, of which Peter had, uh, M Michael Peterson had been the original beneficiary. Well, Peterson spent eight years in prison proclaiming his innocence. The prosecutor still insisted on his guilt. 2017, facing the prospect of a trial at 73 years old, Peterson entered an Alfred plea to the manslaughter charge. Alfred plea allowed Michael to maintain his innocence while acknowledging there was enough evidence to convict him. It's treated as a guilty plea for sentencing purposes, but Peterson received less than the eight years he'd already served. That meant he could walk away a free man. Well, in 2003, Mary Pollard, a friend of Peterson's, asked prosecutors to reopen the case because of information that pointed to another culprit altogether, an owl. Looking at autopsy photos, Pollard said that some of the Gashes on Kathleen's body looked like marks from an owl's exceptionally sharp talons. He consulted with ornithological experts who agreed that the pattern and shape of cuts on Kathleen's head looked more like the results of an owl attack than a fireplace tool. And a species of owl put forward, and Kathleen's potential attacker was a barred owl. An adult bird weighs 1.6 pounds and has a wingspan of up to uh, 3 feet 8 inches. Well, Durham County DA Harden dismissed the theory as completely ridiculous, but owl attacks are not as outlandish as they might seem. Kate Davis, executive director of a wild bird education organization in Florence, Italy, said raptors are known to get aggressive when defending their nest. They tended to attack at night, and Peterson's 911 call was made at 2.40 in the morning. Kathleen was holding clumps of her own hair mixed with wood splinters and needles from a cedar tree. Could an owl have become extent, uh, entangled in her hair? Well, when the SBI eventually acknowledged finding a microscopic feather on a clump of hair in Kathleen's hand, Pollard shouted, the feather has been found. Uh, following Peterson's Alfred plea agreement, though, the owl theory is never, would never have its day in court. Peterson himself said he'd run out of theories. Only thing I know absolutely positively is I had nothing to do with Kathleen's death. In 2007, Caitlin Atwater and Michael Peterson settled a wrongful death suit for $25 million. It's unlikely Peterson will never be able to pay such a large sum. Caitlin said the suit helped to ensure Peterson never profit by writing a book about the case. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back and talk about more Unsolved Murders tomorrow. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.